Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The data advantage that these tech firms have, even on their own acquisitions, and which firms might be worth acquiring is so much greater and faster and smarter than any information that regulators can get, uh, that it makes it really hard to police these firms. The latest cover of The Economist says the new titans and how to tame them. We're talking about Google, Facebook, Amazon, and don't look now, but these are some of the biggest components in the United States stock market. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, our favorite market in Virginia. You have to try out Indian Wednesdays, the breakfast bar, the beat cafe, wine bar. Look out for bluegrass brunch coming up later this year. Um, you have to visit them at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. Joining us from San Francisco, Alexandra Switch Bass, U.S. tech editor for The Economist. She is the author of this week's uh, big cover package on the new Titans. You see these cyborgs on the cover, these massive, these, these monsters, this Google, Facebook, Amazon kind of taking over the earth, marauding over uh, some skyline. And it seems to be uh, the thought that these guys are, are unstoppable. I mean, especially when you throw in the likes of Apple and some of the ancillary players. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? All right. I can't believe for the life of me, because I, I know you're young, but I lived through the 2000 tech bubble. And I, you know, back then it was Yahoo and AOL and Microsoft and Dell were going to take over the world. And I never imagined that the NASDAQ would break through 5,000 in the next, you know, 10 years, 15, 20 years, 30 years, much less 6,000 or 7,000, which it did right now. I know it's not a market story that you did it, but it's certainly a reflection of how big these massive, massive players, Google, Facebook, and Amazon have become. Well, and it tells you something that now, I mean, it's been a bull market for so long that now um, people can't believe the reverse, right? Which is that it could ever go down. <laughs> and that's what this is. Here's the, here's the interesting thing about it. Like, I still look at a player like Amazon. And these are not analogous, really. I mean, except if you look at the overlap and the duopoly of advertising between Facebook and Google, Amazon is a whole different beast. I mean, a year ago, it buys, uh, you know, Whole Foods. It has obvious dominance in the book selling and music selling and has a film studio, um, Amazon Web Services. Maybe it's just the natural order of things that these massive players are going to carve out specific subsectors of technology writ large. Well, it's certainly the bet of investors. I mean, the valuations today are banking on the giants doubling and tripling um, over the next decade. So, I mean, several years even. I mean, the, the faith in these companies to dominate their respective markets and new ones is great, especially in Amazon's case, which is so diversified. Well, you break out these companies accused of being bad, B-A-A-D-D, big, anti-competitive, addictive, and destructive to democracy. I mean, <laughs> do I remember it was from Google's charter and the IPO in 2004 that they, let's say, don't be evil or something to that effect? <laughs> That's right. I, I had fun with that. So I, I wrote our memo this week, which was a, a memo to the tech bosses, mainly to to Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sundar Pichai uh, from Google. So Amazon, Facebook, and Google, respectively. And it was from not Adam Smith uh, from Invisible Hand Strategies, but Eve Smith. Uh, and it was advising the tech bosses on what could go wrong. And uh, tech is an industry that loves acronyms. So 
we came up with our own. And uh, the idea behind describing the different charges against tech in that way as a bad is that there's so many imprecise criticisms of tech right now. And it's a bizarre time. In one sense, you have these extremely popular companies and people love the services and products. And then you have other in certain pockets with especially with populist politicians beating up on these companies saying they're monopolists, um, that they should be broken up. And so we outlined the main criticisms as them being big, uh, anti-competitive, addictive and destructive for, to democracy. And we can you know, talk about any of those because all of those are rich. Subjects, well, let's just let's just pause with the many. well, look, if you just look at the network effects, right, and every other user you bring on, like something like a Facebook becomes much more useful, the more people sign up to it, like it, it becomes like it's this multiplier effect uh, within technology. And we we, you know, look at this right now. By some estimates, you write, Amazon captures over 40% of online shopping in America with more than 2 billion monthly users. Facebook holds sway over the media industry. Firms cannot do without Google, which in some countries processes more than 90% of web searches. Facebook and Google alone control two-thirds of America's online ad revenues. Now, why is that necessarily bigger is bad? If you're good and you're accomplished and you build a better mousetrap, you should capture the rents. You should capture market share. That seems like it's endemic to technology. Well, and I think you point out in your statement, the central issue, which is these firms thrive based on network effects. So the more users that come, the more useful they are, the more users are attracted, et cetera. And so actually the size is part of what makes these firms so useful to consumers. The concern though, is that these companies already have quasi-monopolies in data. I mean, Facebook has the largest, what they call social graph of users, 2 million, excuse me, 2 billion monthly active users, for example. The concern by the big is bad camp is that these firms may be useful today for consumers, but their data advantage is only going to entrench their dominance and there's going to be less innovation and competition going forward. So I think it's a more future-oriented concern. I was surprised, Alexandra, that Apple didn't make the list. I'm obviously the most valuable company on the planet. Um, everyone covets an iPhone if they're not getting an Android phone. And it clearly has network effects if you look at iCloud and photo sharing and FaceTime and the way the ecosystem takes care of people inside the Apple community. I mean, is it kind of pushing? And they're trying to emphasize services more. Uh, I wonder why they're not in the crosshairs of regulators as much. It's a great question. And you're right. I mean, in terms of the the profitability of the company, the value of the company uh, and the profile of the company, they're definitely there. I don't see Apple as having the same risks as mainly Facebook and Google because they're not yet, at least, uh, assuming they don't buy Disney or Netflix, they're not yet in the content business. And so uh, the headaches that Google and Facebook have over properly monitoring their site, over uh, accus accusations of bias and political bias, um, hosting extremist content, uh, disintermediating news publishers, uh, I think that Google and Facebook are much more vulnerable there. And Amazon also has a real conflict of interest when 
when it comes to their their retail operation being both a seller of their own goods and then also a marketplace for other sellers. And we can talk about how they have acted in an anti-competitive way. So I see the Facebook, Google, and Amazon being most in the spotlight. I think Apple, while high profile, because of the nature of their business being a hardware company, even if they are pushing into software, which is your reference to the services business, they're still fundamentally a device, a, a very elegant device maker. Um, and they don't, so therefore they don't have the dilemmas that Facebook, Google, and Amazon have. Talk to me about Amazon in particular. Now, I never would have predicted. Uh, yeah, I think I was exchanging uh, some sort of comment this week with Henry Blodgett about how quaint that original $400 price target was. Adjusted, I mean, adjusted for splits back in 90, December of 1998, maybe it's like $30. And uh, Amazon is now, what, the second or third most valuable company in the United States. Jeff Bezos is worth more than $100 billion. It's not his fault that Wall Street doesn't measure him according to same-store sales or some of the hard metrics that they use, say, to measure a Microsoft or an Oracle. It's not a retailer. It's a cloud services company. It's an exciting option on innovation and media content. He could turn around and say, look, it's not my fault that everybody is giving us such a rich valuation and everybody gives us Amazon Prime money and, and benefit of the doubt. Sure. I don't see the main risk for Amazon in the long term being how the market values at the, values them. That, I don't think, is what creates the political risk for the firm. What creates the political risk is two things. It is the fact that Amazon acts as both a retailer and a marketplace. And so they're able to, to undercut rivals on price if they see that something is, is doing well. There's, there's potentially a lot of anti-competitive behavior that, can, that is occurring or could occur by acting as both a retailer and a marketplace for other retailers. Um, and then the second issue is one of pricing. And there's been some really interesting work done on how our current understanding of predatory pricing is completely turned on its head by these online giants like Amazon. And there was a woman who graduated from Yale Law School named Lena Khan, who's written an excellent piece in the Yale Law Journal on this. It's called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And her point mm. is that uh, predatory pricing um, historically uh, was understood, it, it wasn't understood to be like a long term sustainable thing because ultimately, you know, it would become clear. Ultimately, if you raise prices, consumers might choose to go elsewhere. In Amazon's case, they actually never have to raise the cost, the price of certain goods. So they can make up for the cost by raising the price. So if they're going to undercut um, target by uh, or another online giant by selling diapers or you know undercut booksellers and sell books below cost. They're able to make up that money on either other products or through Amazon Web Services, and so it creates a very interesting conundrum. It might not be a major issue for regulators today because Amazon's actually helping drive down prices. The question becomes: In the future, are they going to raise prices? on consumers when uh, the competition ha has disappeared as um, you know, and we as, see as you know, they, retailers they, struggling. Well, they used to say that about Walmart and Bentonville, that at some right. point it was going <laughs> to expand out so much that at some point it had to shake you down. It had to kind of harvest 
the market share gains, and it never did. In fact, Walmart crashed into this juggernaut known as Amazon, and all of well, retail a, has existential angst right now. It shows you how uh, how much the world has changed in a decade that people pity Walmart these days um, and having to go up against the the giant Amazon. Um, you're, so you're right. The, I mean, if you're using that as an example uh, to prove that creative destruction can bring about new threats, i.e. the internet, um, change the competitive landscape for Walmart, that's true. I don't think that it that that it's necessarily true that another giant can quickly come along and give Amazon a run for its money because I think the data advantage that it has is so significant C controlling around 40% of US online commerce they are learning a tremendous amount about consumer habits uh they're able to offer services uh based on the data they collect they're Rivals are going out of business um, and they're able to undercut people on price. It's not clear to me how someone ultimately comes forward and takes them on. It's possible, I guess, just like Walmart was taken on. But I think that their dominance is going to be a longer term phenomenon, especially to go back to where we started this conversation is if the market supports them uh, as they try and take over the West. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farza. We're talking to Alexandra Switch-Bass, U.S. tech editor for The Economist, which has a big cover this week on the new titans and how to tame them, talking about Amazon, Facebook, and Google. I, I'd like to separate out Facebook and Google for the time being, because as you as you know and as your publication has written about quite a bit, they are frenemies of the journalism industry, so to speak. I mean, you can't be a, 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 an outlet like The New York Times and completely ignore a Facebook or a Google today. In fact, you know, this is the this is the the toll booth that everything goes through necessarily in digital. Um, is that is is there a kind of an argument that can be made that uh, they've kind of sapped any sort of pricing power that these companies have digitally? There was, for example, an era a year or two ago where news outlets were going to increase their exposure on Facebook, both for loading times and in sort in some sort of you know revenue sharing arrangement, but that didn't pan out. The, frenemies is a great word um, to and to describe the relationship. I think a lot of people are, you know, it's friends with benefits, with questionable benefits for a lot of news organizations. As you say, they completely depend on Facebook and Google for distribution. It's around 80% of news publishers' what, traffic comes from referrals from Google or Facebook. It's huge. Uh, they both Google, neither Google nor Facebook has really help drive subscriptions. There was the hope that uh, Facebook especially would uh, make it easier for people to sign up for subscriptions who are using the platform. Um, same thing with Google. And they did with some European um, newspapers that, that cried foul um, with their Google News offering. Um, but for the most part, they really haven't invested significant resources because I think that ultimately their fundamentally, their view of news is fundamentally 
we at odds with media organizations, which is that I think Facebook and Google want their company's brand to be the most important thing that consumers think about and not care about which publisher uh, whose news they're reading, i.e. it's just a way to keep you engaged and read uh, news next to your, in Facebook's case, next to content from friends. So it's not in their interest for you to subscribe to a newspaper and start to search for news on a publisher's website. They want to keep you there. And so while they depend on publishers for engagement and content, especially in Facebook's case, uh, it's, you know, the, uh, so they want to see a rich news ecosystem. Um, they have no interest in starting to pay for content um, and they don't necessarily need their users to either. Um, so they haven't invested heavily in the subscription offerings. They've promised to for a couple of years now. But from a pure CYA, cover your ass, self-preservation perspective. Again, <laughs> I know you're young, but I'm going to take you back to summer of 1997. Arguably the worst tech investment ever made is Bill Gates giving Apple a lifeline, right? Um, and Apple lives to see another day. It comes back and it gets out the cute iMac and uh, – in the early aughts, builds the iPod and now is far bigger than Microsoft, even though Microsoft made a couple of billions of dollars on that investment. I always thought that that was from the perspective of antitrust inoculation. If you remember, you know, Thomas Penfield Jackson and the Justice Department and breaking up uh, Microsoft potentially and the web browser was king back then and not allowing Netscape on, you know, Windows 95 or Windows 98. Uh, what's amazing to me is that these guys have not kind of sprinkled the money around, with the exception of maybe Jeff Bezos privately with his own extra pocket change buying the Washington Post. Facebook and Google have not really alleviated, gone out of their ways to alleviate the, the kind of the death spiral of journalism. Um, oh, I see. Because I would say that they've sprinkled the money around the valley hugely by buying any startup that could threaten them. But your point is on the news business, right? And whether or not they've, they've, they've given back to publishers. Yeah, I mean, publishers, the advertising that's just not done there anymore. And these guys crying foul. Look, Rupert Murdoch has been outspoken about it. Like, why should I give you a back door if a Wall Street Journal article is paywalled? And um, you could just go into Google and look up the same byline and get it for free. I mean, why should I just give that away? It's just like a transfer payment to Google. Well, they say the original sin for journalism was news organizations putting journalism up online and not charging for it and uh, training consumers that journalism was not something that they needed to pay for online. If that was the original sin, then there was a second sin in giving content to Facebook and allowing... news consumers, again, to get access to all this content that's shared in the newsfeed without necessarily enforcing paywalls or negotiating any kind of revenue share. Facebook was very aggressive about not, um, you know, about not having to pay for it. And the, the hope was that the traffic was going to be so significant to websites that um, they would be able to make up for it on, on advertising on their own sites. But of course, news publishers are completely subject to the whims of these companies um, and the algorithms of Google and Facebook. And recently, Mark Zuckerberg said that they've decided um, to mini news CEOs and editors surprised to not favor 
professional journalism as much as organically produced user content <laughs> in newsfeed posts. And so, uh, again, newsrooms are reeling um, because they, the audience isn't there um, and won't be there as much as it has been. And there's, there's no mechanism to protect them because Facebook does not share any of the advertising revenue um, that, that comes al- alongside um, users' engagement through news. What to do, you ask? In the past, societies have tackled monopolies either by breaking them up, as with Standard Oil in 1911, or by regulating them as a public utility, as with AT&T in 1913. Today, both these approaches have big drawbacks. The traditional tools of utilities regulations, such as price controls and profit caps, are hard to apply since most products are free and would come at a high price in foregone investment and innovation. Likewise, a full-scale breakup would cripple the platform's economies of scale, worsening the service they offer consumers. And even then, in all likelihood, one of the Googleettes or face babies would eventually sweep all before it as the inexorable logic of network effects reasserted itself. So I, who, is, who is kind of in charge of all this in the Justice Department or the FTC? I can't imagine that anybody who's paid at government scale could compete with these billionaire masters of the universe out West, I mean, who attract that pay the biggest bucks for engineers, for lobbyists. Uh, it, it seems like a fool's errand. Again, I'm reminded of, of Microsoft and the Justice Department in 2000. And by the time a, a judge finally acted, and it didn't really act ultimately, uh, the topic was technologically irrelevant. And I think that the case in Europe shows exactly that. So last year, the European Commission fined Google $2.7 billion dollars for favoring using its dominance in an unfair way to favor its own online shopping service over that of competitors. A lot of those European competitors are out of business and irrelevant today. So because it took eight years to reach a judgment. So you ask a key question, which is how can we uh, how can we balance the need for thoughtful and deliberate action um, and preparation for a future where the power of these firms is only going to increase uh, with the one-sided nature and knowledge that these firms have over their markets and where they're going to go. I mean, one person, as I was preparing for to write this memo, one person compared it to a prison, uh, to glass in an interrogation room in a prison where only one side can see out. The idea being that the data advantage that these tech firms have have, even on their own acquisitions, are, and which firms might be worth acquiring is so much greater and faster and smarter than any information that regulators can get, uh, that it makes it really hard to police these firms. Hmm. The economist view, you asked what to do. I mean, the economist view, where we come out on the leader, the editorial that you were just quoting from is, our view is that actually, rather than trying to preemptively break these firms up, which, by the way, won't work because one of them will win out anyways. Um, But rather than really drastic action, it's much better to enforce existing laws. So U.S. antitrust law is actually very broad and it gives regulators a wide remit to to take action for anti-competitive behavior if they want to. Uh, The reality is that since Reagan, um, there has been a real laissez-faire view of what regulators should pursue. And they there has been a movement to really judge uh, 
judge anti-competitive conduct based on consumer prices. So therefore, if unless the prices for consumers are rising, there's not where is that idea. But that isn't uh, necessarily a good judge in a digital world where all almost all of these services are free. Consumers pay with their data. So it becomes very interesting for regulators if they want to look beyond price. And that's where I think an activist government, and you know, we might actually see some action from Trump because he's very unconventional in his approach. Um, and so we might see something from the DOJ or FTC. We'll see. But if they wanted to, they could take a much more liberal view um, and decide to, for example, embrace a potential competition doctrine. So don't just look today at an acquisition. Don't just look at where Instagram, for example, is today as a photo sharing app and decide that there's no overlap. Think about where the company could go if it's allowed to survive as an independent company. And could it potentially take on Facebook in an interesting way by, you know, either through challenging it for advertising dollars, um, challenging it for users, um, you know, regulators in that specific instance looked very, very narrowly at the case. Britain's Office of Fair Trading said that, you know, there are a lot of quote unquote photo sharing apps and it didn't overlap with Facebook at all. Um, and th they saw no competitive harm coming from that acquisition. I think now it's quite obvious that had Instagram been allowed to succeed as an independent company, it could have given challenge Facebook, both for ad revenue and users. So requiring or asking regulators to think more expansively, both about how they see consumer harm and impact on innovation hurt consumers, um, rather than just looking at prices as one approach, um, and then uh, kind of thinking about where the market could go rather than just looking immediately at where tech, where tech firms are. Um, and that's where they would really have to get more data um, and be a little bit more far-sighted about how technologies are going to evolve so that they're not always five to 10 years sure. behind the tech firms. You know, when I look at the top 10 or the top five, top seven most valuable companies in the United States, um, what I, I really kind of, I scratch my head at Facebook and Google because I just don't give them any money out of pocket. Nothing comes out of my hide. I mean, Gmail is free. If I want to upgrade to a bigger storage plan on Gmail, I have the option of doing that. But Facebook, I largely have a free relationship with it. I don't buy any of the freemium things. Um, they they bought WhatsApp, right? They gave me Messenger, Instagram. I don't pay these things anything. Whereas an Exxon Mobil, I do pump my gas at an Exxon. I do buy. Um, you know, Microsoft Office, even if it's for my MacBook, I do upgrade my MacBook and my um, iPhones, you know, every couple of years. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of, to me, I kind of, uh, I'm miffed at how these companies could ever be looked at as anti-competitive in the sense that they're not having a, a B2C relationship with customers. Sure. But I mean, you, both Facebook and Google are making a lot of money them with the advertising. So whether or not you're clicking on the ad, people 
advertisers are paying to get in front of users like you. And I think if you notice, you know, Facebook, I think, has been very expert at trying to make advertisers posts look like friends posts. They're kind of sleek and um, usually topically relevant to something that you've engaged with. Google, I think, has been even sneakier. I mean, most people on mobile, when they search, think they're clicking on a search result, but are actually clicking on an ad. They've kind of made the ad marker smaller and smaller and smaller on mobile, and then also suppressed organic search results in favor of paid ads. So, you know, usually on a mobile screen, you won't even see if your search is related to something that's commercial. Let's say I'm you, Robin, are Googling hotels in San Francisco for your next trip out here, um, you won't even see an organic search result. You'll be clicking for the first kind of whole screen page uh, worth of, on an ad. Um, and so you say, you know, you're not paying, but um, they're making a lot of money. You are the you are the product um, that they're selling to advertisers. <laughs> and indeed, you say a further charge is that tech firms' products are addictive. People argue about this, but many feel that people who spend time on social media, especially teens, are less happy than peers. We did see two of Apple's shareholders, the California State Teachers Retirement System Pension and Jana Partners, an activist hedge fund, recently demand more to be done to help youngsters' smartphone addiction. I mean, Alexandra, that must be a great dilemma to have. If you imagine you know, these companies pitching VCs decades ago, like, you know, what are the risks in our business models that we might be too good and too too addictive and the product lust might be so much that there's going to be a backlash. Well, as I write in the memo, you know you're in trouble as a tech firm if a Wall Street firm is lecturing you about money. Um, I, I did find it kind of ironic. Um, but Jana um, and then the the California Pension Fund are appealing to Apple um, to make their product, you know, its products less addictive to teenagers. I think it, you know there's differing research about really how conclusive the studies are that trace technology uh, use to depression and teen suicide um, and, you know, especially in moderate use. Um, I think there's, there is some skepticism about whether the impact is so negative. I think the, the charge that I find um, to be the most damning is the final two Ds in our bad acronym, um, the, the destructive to democracy charge. And I think it's, you know, as you pointed out, Google was founded on the principle of don't be evil. Um, and now its general counsel is getting hauled in front of Congress, uh, along with Facebook and Twitters, uh, and being told that basically they may have influenced the results of the 2016 election. They were responsible for uh, spreading falsehoods. Um, people's opinions were manipulated about local protests um, and things were politically divisive issues in America, um, like race and police violence. And so that's the charge. I mean, the, I think the addiction issue it is a concerning reputational one for a company like Apple, but I find the, and Facebook too, I find the more damning charge to be that these companies that had claimed to do good for the world and bring people closer together are actually driving societies and communities farther apart. Hmm. Full disclosure, we are talking to Alexandra Switch-Bass, U.S. tech editor for The Economist, author of this week's cover package on uh the the massive play i mean in some circles they're called fangs or, or is there is there an easy abbreviation yeah it's the fangs 
or the or if you want to go with our acronym, the BADS. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> the but BADS. Yeah, the <laughs> Google, Facebook, Amazon. Um, I I I do wonder. Uh, you 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 mentioned Apple before, and. I do wonder, you know, what would what they'd have to do to kind of hit this tripwire. You know, I we've talked with editors in the past that they are largely immune to the kind of sweatshop criticism and you know don't do evil criticism that the other players have gotten and and other CEOs have gotten wrapped on the knuckles for it. Maybe they get a pass on college campuses because people love their products. Um, what would they have to kind of integrate into vertically or acquisition wise? for them to be a part of this conversation because certainly um, you see so the services part of their business is only getting bigger. This discussion of original content and you know Apple Pay, I think about a company that has $250 billion of cash. It could well be a bank. Um, you know, you kind of get into that conversation of, of too big to fail or too big to control at some point. Yeah, I, I so I might disagree that they've been immune to the criticism on workplace conditions because you remember a couple years ago with the Foxconn yeah. exposés where they were having they, having to put nets around because sure, sure. Uh, people were committing suicide. So I think there there is potentially with Apple there's an issue with their suppliers and the workplace conditions um, and kind of fair wages. And then the other issue is are they fair to their suppliers or are they squeezing their suppliers? because they're such a huge buyer. So there's kind of a monopsony, potentially, uh, potentially a monopsony issue. Um, whoa, you're throwing these big British words at me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. what is <laughs> no, that? So that's like the buyer... <laughs> basically um kind of um can can control prices for suppliers so it's a um so if, you know that's a that apple does face some potential blowback i think that you know one thing that could happen if we're playing a future forecasting game is they could try you know it had been rumored it's harder to believe now that they would buy the n in fang netflix um because it's so expensive now but for a couple of years people have been speculating uh, for more than a couple of years have been speculating that apple would go into content or buy a firm like netflix netflix specifically so one question um that might be asked of them uh, as it relates to their size or dominance is should they be allowed to go into content and then you'd get into an issue like AT&T is having right now trying to buy Time Warner which is it's a vertical in a, it's a vertical acquisition it, they're not directly they don't already have a business that directly competes you know with content but buying content would make them so powerful and vertically integrated um, that it might raise concerns uh, populist camp. So that's something that might um, create blowback from for them in the in the next few years. In addition to the workplace, why conditions. wasn't the, why wasn't there more scrutiny during that big celeb you know iCloud um, iPhoto hacking thing? In that so much of this stuff, like wow, it was that easy for somebody to go out and get all of these these private photos. Doesn't that make us all seem much more vulnerable in that case? Uh, why weren't? Why didn't they bring yeah. Tim Cook up on the hill? Why didn't they suddenly look at scans at all of these photos and um, you know videos and everything being stored on Amazon or on Google Drive? I, I, w I was surprised that that kind of came and went. 
I think that it's, I think that's a great question. I think that is a huge risk for these firms, which is the da- kind of data breach and security, um, which could uh, be a huge accelerant if, um, uh, you know, on for some kind of action, if something like that happened, basically like an Equifax scale breach. Um, I think the reason it didn't happen with Apple is that it, the, Although the breach um, involved some high-profile names, it wasn't um, as huge in scale as, for example, an Equifax breach was. And I think so. I think part of it is a scale issue, and then I think part of it is Apple's very clever branding, which is they have differentiated themselves vis-a-vis Google as the privacy-centric company, which probably makes the breach even that, you know, all that more damning um, because it was a violation of, you know, these celebrities' privacy with these nude photos. But um, but Apple has been very adept at seeming like they want to do everything possible to ensure users' privacy. They're like, for example, not mining data to improve products like Google does. Um, And so I think the fact that they've taken privacy so seriously in the past, the past won them a pass in this instance. And, you know, while I was reading your excellent cover, by the way, everybody should pick it up in The Economist this week, I was thinking about suddenly, look who's been wallflowered but Microsoft. And, And not suddenly, because this has taken almost 20 years for them to miss out on a bunch of these trends, what with online advertising and uh, the smartphone and and iOS's explosion, but they are now again. Don't look now, but they're worth seven hundred billion dollars, and they've had a, a monstrous year and a, a a return under what is it, Satya, Satya Nadella? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think Do you think they're happy to not be on your cover? I mean, it must be cold comfort. Like, wow, we used to be feared. They used to talk about breaking us up, and now we're just not even in the conversation. <laughs> but so they are, but again like the, what about hotmail what were, about hotmail <laughs> but they remain so dominant right with um the with windows with the office suites um i mean it's actually you can take you could take you could have two interpretations about tech and antitrust action with Microsoft. One is to say, okay, well, actually, antitrust action, you know, d- doesn't necessarily doom you um, because this is a firm that had such considerable control um, in PCs that even, you know, trustbusters doing everything in their power to to take down this giant didn't work, and they've, you know, that they're their sustainable advantage, competitive advantage is so entrenched that, you know, that they've been able to survive. So, you know, that the tech giants might take hurt from Microsoft. Um, Another interpretation is that um, the trust buster, while Microsoft is still riding high because investors believe that, you know, their legacy product still is minting money and under this new leadership, under Nadella, um, maybe they'll come up with the next great thing. So investors are kind of optimistic about Microsoft. But another um, lesson you could take is that antitrust action can give um, space and create space for a new generation of firms. And some business historians trace the rise of the software industry and this new generation of internet companies to two to two actions. One was forcing 
DM um, to open up its platform to independent software developers. Um, AT&T, um, you know, was broken up and then Microsoft was forced to release some of its source code and relevant information so that rivals um, could be, could create compatible software and all the regulators forcing things on these, the dominant tech firms of their day also increased competition for them. So you mm -hmm. could look at it two ways. One is antitrust action doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily a death sentence, um, you know, and you can still stay dominant uh, in your respective industry or um, it increases competition. Um, and it's, it's probably somewhere in between. Do you, do you suspect, I mean, in closing that we're going to look back at this era, much like we did in 99 and 2000 and say that, Wow, these guys got way too big for their britches. Yes, they were dominant, but the uh, the opportunity and the peril were just wildly overrated and overstated. I think that this is entirely different from 1999. These are huge businesses with enormous user bases incredibly paranoid management teams. They're young enough that they saw what happened to the dot-com darlings that just went up in smoke. And so they are these companies are being run incredibly intelligently. They're, they're large, but they're not getting fat and lazy, at least not yet. Um, and so I think that it's entirely possible that if you and I had this conversation five years from now, these companies are going to be even more entrenched and profitable. Um, and the conversation about how to curb them will potentially be even more relevant then. But I don't, I don't see this as being like 1999. I think these, you know, Jeff Bezos from Amazon has this motto that it's day one. Um, and if you're, <laughs> i.e., we're just getting started before we do even more ambitious things. And if this is his day one, there's a lot more to come. Alexandra Switchbass, U.S. tech editor for The Economist, author of a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous cover package this week on how to tame the tech titans, Amazon, Facebook, Google. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to chat with you. Full disclosure, you can catch us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. No plans yet for CompuServe or Prodigy. Uh, hey, look, we are trust-busting fangs in the cloud, now offering Sunday delivery on Prime. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.